Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome everybody to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Today, we're talking MLS recruiting scandals, Generation Adidas Cup, USMNT updates, and much, much more. To do so, I'm joined by a man who is generously taking time away from debating his colleagues about what is and isn't a handball. It's Mr. Paul Tenorio. Hello, Paul. I was right, and Felipe was egregiously wrong, as usual. And my favorite thing is that he's been in the comment section all day. He's in know, the comment ba- section? Battling with the commenters of the column. He, he just cannot leave it alone. I was going to ask if it had been resolved if you all were moving towards just like open conflict. It sounds like more open conflict than resolution. Yeah, and there's not really a conflict. There's, there is right and there is wrong. And I am right and he is wrong. So, uh, Paul, I was also in the comment section and I backed your perspective on that one. I don't know if Felipe responded, but if he did, I'm assuming it was with uh, frustration. Uh, we'll talk more about that maybe later on. Right now, rounding out our crew is uh, Mr. Generation Adidas himself. I think you've been Mr. Blank himself multiple times on this one, David Goss. Hello, David. How are you doing? Are you recording from a sunny field in Florida? Are there alligators around? Are you staying alive? How are things? Um, this is the mister that I most closely do associate with, Mr. Okay. Generation Adidas Cup, so mm-hmm. I will accept that one. I have the most amazing setup for this record. I'm in this hotel room in Sarasota, Florida. I have window a window that runs probably like 100 feet across this room. And let me tell you, the parking lot that I have a view of <laughs> is world class. <laughs> and the laundromat across the street that is oh, yeah. named Surf City makes me feel like I'm looking at the beach. There's no what, parking lot like a Florida parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> what, what chain restaurant that you don't want to eat at is visible uh, from Carab- where you're Car- Carabas? Is that there how you pronounce it? Yes, sir, it is. All right. David Goss going to go uh, enjoy his happy hour at Carabas. Before he can do that, we're going to talk lots of different things, as I said. Man, I thought start- you were about to tie in a sponsor, and I was about to be a <laughs> sponsor yes. by Carabas. <laughs> Speaking of Carabas, we're not sponsored by them, but Olive Garden is where you want to go to get a mediocre Italian meal. Uh, Let's talk uh, Academy controversies. Uh, Paul, can you just take us through basically the gist of uh, the story that you were writing about yesterday and I'm assuming we'll be writing about this week? Well, basically, Academy tampering is pretty widespread in MLS. And let me start by saying this is not a new phenomenon. This has been happening for the entire existence of academies that teams are, you know, they recruit good players. They want to sign good players to their teams. However, recently major league soccer changed the rules about homegrown territories where teams have protected lists of players that are not able to be recruited by rival MLS teams. So there's 45 players that are protected on their academy rosters and up to nine players from outside of their academy, but within their territories who are also on the protected list. Anybody outside of that 54 players from the U15 level and above can be recruited by other MLS teams. The other thing that you can't touch if you're an MLS team in another territory is anyone 
playing under the under 15 level. So 14 year olds, or I guess 13 year olds and lower, essentially. And what happened recently is that a lot of GMs felt like there was still significant recruiting happening of players on protected lists. And MLS came out in a CSO call and essentially laid out punishments or forced trades kind of that they had put into place for past violations of these rules. Some of them occurred uh, before these new rules were instituted. Some of them occurred after these rules were instituted. But, you know, I think there was some argument to be made that, hey, these weren't clear. Not everyone knew the list. And essentially what this is, what MLS was trying to do was create kind of a reset. Like, okay, everyone now has the 54 protected players in every market. No more recruiting the players that are on these lists. Like, that is just a violation. And what I heard from multiple CSOs was they believed that the punishments that were doled out for these nine teams, six of them a little bit more serious, three were like ticky-tack kind of stuff, were not strong enough to deter the same type of tampering in the future. And so there's still a discussion being had behind the scenes in MLS about what the punishments will look like for this kind of tampering. And there's not a decision yet. And and that to me is interesting. Some CSOs thought that it might be discussed at the MLS Board of Governors meeting, which is happening Tuesday and Wednesday in California. Um, but as of yet, there's not like a clear path forward in terms of punishment. There is a very clear path forward in terms of these are the rules, do not break them. Uh, and But it's, you know, I think every rule someone's <laughs> going to try to break, let's be honest. So we'll see, we'll see how it moves forward. Why does this matter, Paul? Uh, in a very broad question, more specifically, I think for people who follow MLS casually, might be less familiar with the academy structure and, and the recruiting that goes on. When we're talking about these young players, there's not always the guarantee they're going to make it big. Oftentimes they won't end up making it uh, past that first team or even onto the first team. So why is this such a big deal or such a potentially big deal? Well, I think for two reasons. There, there's a big knockdown effect on your roster when you have an academy player who contributes, right? Like um, if you are, let's use Philadelphia as an example. Like if you have Jack McGlynn as your third central midfielder, he's an off-budget homegrown player and, and he contributes good minutes to your first team. By having a contributing player, even though he's not a star, even though he's not like a main starter, that means that you freed up space in your senior budget to go spend that money somewhere else, right? So there's those types of homegrown players who allow you to to have more room in your senior roster to go spend in different areas. Then there are the Brendan Aronsons, who you sell for millions of dollars, right? Like that's the end game. Um, and so MLS teams look at it and say, these are valuable assets. These homegrown players are valuable assets that we want to protect. This is, for me, the most significant thing is it reopens, reignites the debate that has been going back and forth, back and forth among teams behind the scenes for years now, which is, should territories exist? Should MLS teams be able to recruit whomever they want to go play on their teams? Doesn't matter what markets they live in. Um, and the other side of the debate, which is people saying, no, like homegrown territories exist so that those hometown teams have the best chance to develop players in their backyard and bring them into the first team and benefit from the talent that they, that they have living in their area. And, you know, I spoke to one CSO who said he felt like tampering in this area was more significant even than some of the conversations that might happen behind the scenes on 
players who are on other teams' discovery lists or free agents on the senior level because, one, there's a big focus in the league on selling homegrown players. And two, homegrown players are, if you can get contributing home play, homegrown players, it makes a big, big difference on your roster, like a big competitive advantage. The Red Bulls under Jesse Marsh were really successful, partly also because they had a homegrown player who was one of the stars of the team. That that allows you to have flexibility all throughout your roster. So, you know, it, it's 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 got implications at the senior level on the team you see on the field. It's got implications in the budget because you can sell players and bank a million dollars plus in GAM um, and put cash in the pocket of your owner. Uh, and it's got implications because it, it, it does create this debate about what is the right path forward for developing and signing young American talent. What is the divide in that debate like as far as you understand it? How split is the league in terms of we should have like specific territories that only we can recruit, only we can sign from versus, nope, it should just be free market and everybody can sign anybody? I mean, Goss, you've been around for as long as I have in this. I would say like, I mean, I, I remember writing about the DA being created when I was at the Washington Post back in 2007, 2008. And I would say the debate started right then. You yeah, I got a big exhale from Goss. <laughs> yeah, so like, I mean, and it, it only last, only this past year did they create these new rules. So from 2007, 2008 to 2022, there was a debate and that shows you how split it was. And, and I did a story, I think it was last year, it might have been two years ago, where I interviewed Peter Vermees who has been one of the louder advocates for opening things up completely. Obviously, Kansas City... They don't have a, a, a homegrown territory like Dallas, right? Like a lot of their model is going to be based on recruiting from outside of their home territory. But and so he benefits from from opening things up. He advocated very, very convincingly into why it should be opened. The other half of this story, I, I talked to Ali Curtis, who at the time was in Toronto, which does have a great homegrown territory. And he argued very vociferously against opening things up. And he made some compelling arguments as well. And like that has how it breaks down. Like I would, I don't know if it's 50-50, but you have very smart and strong voices in the room who are respected among CSOs, who are respected at the BOG, who are making compelling arguments in both directions. And that's why it took 14 years for any sort of change to happen. And it's why I think that we're still a few years away from even approaching the idea of opening things up completely beyond these protected lists. Cause they felt like this was, it took them 14 years to get to what they thought was a pretty good compromise, which is these protected lists. And the, you know, the landscape has changed over that time as well of like at the start with the DA process, it was like, maybe there'll be a Freddie Adu to a world now in which every team thinks they have a multi-million dollar player in their market that they can sell. And so the reality of what all of this means has shifted. I would say from my experience and, I'm here at the GA Cup. I think most people in the youth ranks actually in the MLS setup don't actually want the protected areas because they believe that they should do a good job and the players should have options and that if they are able to operate a high-level academy and build a pathway, that players will come and that's sort of the best option for the players. So it is interesting, the breakdown at the first team level versus the academy level and how that happens because the first team level, you know, they have one focus and I think most clubs, it's top to bottom, a similar focus, but just being around, I think, the players every day versus sort of seeing it from a high level shifts the opinion as well. But, you know, Paul talked about the value of having a homegrown on your roster and talked about the potential that it could have in helping you win. The other thing is these are 
basically lottery tickets for these teams right now. Like if Christian Pulisic, if the next Christian Pulisic is in your homegrown territory, that could change the reality of a club competitively, but more likely from the money it brings in, right? The famous story that Marisa do funded the building of TFC's training facility all the way back in what? 2007, 2006. What? I don't think I know that story. He was or, the first let me rephrase that. I don't know that story. He what? was the first draft pick in the super draft out of Maryland for TFC. They sold uh, him to Rangers, right? Yeah. I believe so, yeah. Okay. I thought you I and, thought you, the way you similar, said that, I thought you uh, genuinely meant like no, he like no, out no. of pocket was like, I got this. No. Like throwing down money. All right, cool. No, it was the same thing with Josie Altador. Josie Altador's sale funded the building at the Red Bull training facility. Like they it helped them build their the building that's there that exists now to house academy locker rooms and stuff like that. Like that's what built that facility. Yeah. So um Yeah, so you know it it, it so it from a money point of view for these clubs is massive and for some, it's basically just a win because they don't actually develop the guy. So there's a ton of things going on and there's a ton of different options of like how this can play out and how this can affect you. Um, I do think there are elements of this that I actually like. One being, why will Major League Soccer matter? Like, what does Major League Soccer need to do to be relevant in the United States? And I do think one thing that can be unique is having players from the area. Carmelo Anthony got traded to the Knicks. We celebrated like New York's own was going to play. He moved when he was four years old from New York to Baltimore. And they did a he's coming home video. And he talks about Brooklyn and all that it means. That's how desperate other leagues are to have this connection. If you trot out a team of six kids from across L.A. for LAFC and you win a CCL final, that's an ability to connect, I think, with markets, with fan bases that other leagues do in the U.S. don't have, and that can help you stand out, I think, in the sports landscape in a way that Major League Soccer doesn't know how to right now, right? Like, Major League Soccer is trying different things. There is no clear answer of how to cut through and become relevant. I do think that's one huge avenue, and so that's one of the reasons I don't mind trying to keep some level of homegrowns in their area. Yeah, I mean, I, I again, I think the, there's like a... Um, I think opening things up doesn't mean that all of a sudden the FC Dallas Academy is going to be filled with kids from Chicago and Salt Lake City and you know that's a bad example to bring up but like Chicago the and one LA that's going to be recruiting everyone else Sac- Sacramento <laughs> you know like Dallas can still sign Dallas born players like Chicago could be getting recruited by you know 20 other MLS teams and could still end up having you know six kids from Chicago that get to the first team for the fire like Opening things up doesn't mean that you're not going to be able to sign your hometown kids. What it does mean is that you have to do a better job in every single market. You have to do a better job and you have to show a clear pathway from the academy to the first team. So like right now, today, if you were to open things up, I think Dallas, which you think would be the team that wants to protect their area the Mm -hmm. most, would be the biggest beneficiary because they would still get all the Dallas kids and they would be able to go recruit the kids from Chicago and LA and Sacramento and San Francisco. All these kids that are saying, I want to play first team. I'm going to Dallas. I'm going to Philly. Where it, yeah. where it hurts you is if you're the LA Galaxy, where you very rarely have a player going from the academy to the first team and playing real minutes. Or LAFC, which doesn't really have right now in their model space for homegrown players. That's not they're they're chasing trophies and mm-hmm. they're doing it in a different way. And you know, so that's that's where I think it I think it's a good thing in that it pushes accountability. It pushes teams to get 
better. And this is something MLS doesn't like very much. They don't like these pressure points that force teams into competitive scenarios where they have to be better and they have to be accountable. And you can see that all across the rule book, right? Like it's why discovery lists exist. They don't want teams uh, negotiating against each other. It's why, you know, why you don't see their full salary cap because then the GMs would be held accountable for every single move that they make and every dollar and every penny that they spend. And it's why these academy territories exist so that they don't have to worry because a kid from Chicago who wants to play in MLS has no choice but to go to the fire academy. And, you know, the difference now, though, is that 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 landscape is changing a little bit. We see some kids going and signing with USL teams, which is still new. They're they're only beginning to start to recruit. This is something that USL waited way too long on. I thought they should have. I think they should push even more aggressively into this area to, to go for young American talent and say, hey, forget about five-year homegrown deals in MLS Next Pro. Like, Come to USL, play first-team soccer on a three-year deal, and we are incentivized to sell you, play you in year one and try to sell you in year two before your contract's up, you know? But, and, and of course, we've seen the number of players moving from the U.S. to Europe, and that Europe, and that's opened up where Goss is standing on a GA Cup sideline and he's looking at 40 scouts from teams abroad. That's really what prompted this first change, mm-hmm. right? Is that now, okay, teams, we're going to, we're going to keep you happy and say you're protecting the best 54 players in your, in your area across three age groups, but we're going to allow MLS teams to go into those markets and recruit anyone else outside of that list because we'd prefer that a kid from Dallas that's not on the 54 end up turning pro with the union than signing with a team in Germany. And the question is whether this is going to be enough. And and I think we don't know yet because this is a very new. I mean, they're still sorting through the early days of recruiting violations upon these lists being created just a couple months ago. So we are so new into this new this rule that we don't know if it's going to be the perfect solution. But I think at least it's an acknowledgement that the landscape has changed enough that something within MLS had to change as well. And I kind of like this compromise of, again, you have some level of protections for the guys who are in your team and a few of the guys maybe that you're talking to, but, you know, 54 players, right? Let's put this in context. The New York City metro area probably has somewhere around 30 million people. So Red Bulls can protect 54, and that's across every age group. That's not in each age group, and which I think Paul mentioned. So from U15 through to U19 or whatever you want to call it, it depends on the team, what they have. You're protecting 54 players. And now in New York, you have NYCFC who are doing that as well. So 108 players are off the board in a 30 to 35 million person metro area. That gives plenty of space for Philadelphia, Colorado, whoever else to go in and say, we have a better pathway. We have a better option. The other thing I would say, and as Paul mentioned on the competitive side, the other part of every piece of what we're talking about is cost cutting. So discovery lists, keeping down negotiations means the league doesn't have to pay as much for players. The same with not exposing how much you're paying people, what you have in cap space. That also applies to this. Housing kids from over from other markets is more expensive. Building schools is more expensive. RSL has done it because they were owned by a racist, but he also was a construction uh, company owner. And so he was like, I'm going to build a school and make it a charter school and I'm going to make money off of it. It's possible. And the hope would be if these teams are good at it, you're selling players at such a rate that, again, the Moa do Josie Altador things we said that continues to happen. 
and where does the Brendan Aronson money go? And where does the, you know, at some point, probably the Jesus Ferrer money and the Kate Cowell money go? That goes back into building out these facilities, but it's more expensive to have someone from New York play in San Jose and house them, provide everything for them, take care of them, then have them live with their family and then come and be a part of your program during the day. So that's always a factor when you're talking about these things with MLS is the league is always trying to keep costs down. Now, we both, Goss and I, have told a lot of this story through the perspective of MLS. And I think it's important to also acknowledge the the non-MLS part of here, which is the nine players from outside of MLS academies who can be put on these lists. Mm-hmm. They're not happy. I mean, when you talk to people who work in youth soccer outside of MLS academies, there's a lot of like, how in the world could you say that you own my rights to turn pro in MLS? Right? Like a kid who's played his whole career in Bethesda but DC United won't let him go and sign with Philadelphia because they claim his rights Mm -hmm. or a kid who grew up playing for soccer's and the fire own his rights, even though he chose not to play for the fire Academy for whatever reasons, or, you know, the kid growing up in San Jose playing for another team in the San Jose area. I'm mind blanking on the team I wanted to use here and didn't sign with the the force. Yeah. Don, thank you. Don's a force because they didn't want to play for the earthquakes. They didn't see a path and they want to go down and sign for, they want to go up and sign with the Sounders and they can't because San Jose earns their owns their rights. That's where I think like we're getting into this area where, yes, it's improved over the fact that those teams don't own every single player's MLS rights, no matter what team they play in. We've now narrowed it down from thousands of kids to nine. But I think those nine are the nine who have the best chance to turn pro realistically. And the question is like, how much should a homegrown team be able to profit off of that? Because ultimately, that's what this comes down to, right? Like these forced trades that happened are, you know, Philadelphia paying a couple hundred thousand dollars in allocation money for a player who never played in the academy of, let's say, LAFC or LA Galaxy. And those teams are saying, hey, well, we we have them on our protected list, so you actually owe us money. And the the counter argument to that, those teams that are doing this recruiting are saying, this kid not only doesn't want to play for you, they never did play for you. They weren't in the academy. They weren't going to sign for you. Why should we have to pay for them to play for us when they do want to play for us and they are coming to us? And those players are saying, why in the world am I having to jump this hurdle to go sign for the team I want to sign for? And and I think that's the the bigger struggle for me, just kind of on like, what's the right way to go about this? And and I, I think I have I would have no problem if this new rule said every player who is in your academy is untouchable. You cannot recruit a player that is in another MLS's team academy. You cannot talk to their parents. You cannot pitch them on leaving the academy. There's no transfer portal, right? But anyone else in the market is fair game. That to me is the the better solution here. Because we, again, the goal should be if you're MLS we want the best American players signing an MLS and making it easy for them to sign an MLS. And if you're LA and you've got a kid in your area who's playing for another youth team and they don't want to sign for you, then there's a reason why. Because they're looking at LAFC and saying, I don't see a path to first team minutes in the next four or five years. I don't want to go and sign and play an MLS next pro. I do see a path in Philly or Dallas or shoot, even a market like Kansas City or Portland where they don't have a ton of homegrown kids that's that that forces LA to say what do we want our model to be 
And if we're if we do want it to be what we have it as, and we're winning MLS cups, then that's okay. We're going to lose some of these kids to other markets. But I don't I don't know that everyone agrees that they should lose them for two hundred thousand dollars just because the kid happened to be born in LA. I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Gus, I want to hear your perspective. I want to take one quick break. This is a fascinating conversation, and I want to keep it going. Uh, we'll be back very shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back. We are continuing to talk about uh, academies, development, player signings, territories, expansion, controversy, all of these many things. Lots of hot button uh, terms. Goss, before we bro- uh, took a break, I interrupted you, so I will now stop talking and let you start talking. No, I, I love that Paul brought up that player side of things because we're talking about kids, right? And so like that's always has to be something that has to be protected and discussed. You mentioned the transfer portal and, and a lot of this conversation feels like what we've talked about with college sports for 60 years of control and control is unfair. And you have players and athletes and people who in, on the college side, they went to the wrong school. And now Tom Izzo decides their life for the next most important four years of their life. And you never want players in that situation. My hope is that the way this process becomes is basically you, you just are setting a price, which is, oh, you want one of the nine? Then here's our top four. Here's our middle four. Here's the last one. It's 300000 200000 150 and, and that's how much it costs. And that's sort of what the process is more than like, no, you will not touch this player. It's you know if it's one of these nine, then you have to ask us for permission to talk to them, and then this is what it's going to cost. Now, that number is going to be part of the controversy. And I think that's something, Paul, you talked about. Of Some people feel the numbers aren't high enough, and that's probably a conversation that has to be had. Now we also get into sell-on stuff because they're in the same FA of, you know, if that player gets sold for $10 million to Germany and then $20 million to Portugal or Spain, whatever, then you sort of have to figure out that number as well on the back end. But I think the flip side of this is, I think some of the responsibility of Major League Soccer, and I spent a really long time yesterday talking to someone from France and someone from Belgium, is generating local soccer. And if the Portland Timbers only recruit kids from Chicago, Dallas, Miami, and New York, then they are doing nothing to improve soccer being played in Portland. So I think you do have to, in a way, also push the clubs to be better at what they do because otherwise they can just bail out and go to other areas. And there is not a single club in major league soccer that has an excuse on market. Like I find that absurd that teams are like, Oh, well we're we're from a small market. We're from a mid market. All of these markets are larger than the average city and other countries that generate a ton of players. All of these markets have players. And if you're good at what you do, if you build a top-down system, if you have a specific style that you build players into, you can generate at a minimum professional effective players. And then there are also a massive amount of open markets in Major League Soccer. Like 
the restrictions on what MLS teams own market. It's the country is not split across the board. There are open areas like Michigan, like parts of Nevada where you can go and find players. So there is space for all of these clubs to operate. And I think the complaint that, oh, we're a small market and we don't have an opportunity, I think is poor. And I would say, as Paul, as you sort of like thought about those homegrowns, like those should be, if I'm the Rapids, I have the best pitch. My team spends no money. You will play. Sam Vine started. Cole Bassett plays. Darren Yappy plays. Center forward in Major League Soccer starting at 18 years old because we don't spend any money at the first team level. The pitch should only get easier for those clubs as well as the cost coming down because real estate is cheaper in those areas and all of those things. And I, I think that's – if I was a fan, I wouldn't allow my club to state that as their excuse. Yeah. I mean I think also the one of the benefits of this new – nine protected players outside of the academy and i hate that again i want to be clear i really don't like the nine outside of your academy like do a better job get them in your academy and then they're protected not my opinion but but wait let me ask you this and i i think i agree with you but dallas has so many good players you have your 54 that doesn't mean you don't think those nine aren't good you may not have space right well clearly you don't think they're better than your other 45 that are in your academy like if you like the question is more like can you get them in your academy if the rule is anyone in your academy is untouchable the job is just recruiting the best players and doing a good enough job to show they have a pathway if you don't have space for them then they're not a good problem to have like but like but for me you know i again i grew up in the dc area talent rich area for soccer always has been um and I remember when the academies first launched and having grown up in that soccer community, I knew very quickly the perspective on MLS academies and on the DA and and immediately, you know, what happens is people's money is at stake, right? Their, their, their livelihood because they make money on youth soccer. And the concern was DC United is going to come in and they're going to poach all the best players. And, and that's how a lot of MLS academies started. Like, of course you should play for us. We're the one professional team in this market. Why would you go? Why would you be playing for, you know, Arlington or Team America or Reston or Bethesda, like, of course, you're going to come to DC. And that immediately shut down like all of the relationships between DC United and the local teams. And it took a decade to start to rebuild those and to try to create partnerships. And just the other day, I was scrolling through Instagram reels, um, because I'm old. And I came across this, this example of, of a young player in England, like a nine year old, like playing for his hometown team. And they they gave him like one of the tunnels that you used to get at the end of youth games. You run through the tunnel of all your teammates and they were celebrating because he was signing for Brighton's Academy. And they were like, oh, he's you know, we're so happy that he's going to his like club that he loves. And it was like a good thing for that local club that one of their kids was signing with Brighton's Academy. And they celebrated it because they understood that that's like the best step for him to go and have a chance to be a professional. And that attitude largely hasn't existed in American soccer. There's been, it's always competitive. And, you know, I think that this incentivizes teams to build better relationships with those clubs in your area so that you can say, hey, listen, if you're Chicago, the best player on soccers, they can stay with your academy. We're going to put them on our protected list. If he signs with MLS, we'd prefer that he signs with us. So he's going to be protected, but we don't need to take him out of the soccer's academy right away and say, we're better than you. Like, fine, let him play with soccer if he wants to. And then, hey, why don't you come sign with MLS Next Pro when you're 17 and and we have a path for you to the first team? Either way, maybe the kid doesn't want to do that. And that's a whole other discussion. But 
my hope is if, of this rule that I don't like that the one thing it incentivizes is for these MLS teams to, to build better relationships with their local clubs because, like Goss said, that only makes the talent in your area better. If you have a lot of clubs working on development and working together and saying, our goal should be to get our best players to turn pro in this market where we can all go watch and play and say, hey, you know, this kid's from our club. That's a positive. And I think I've seen some changes, right? Like some teams now announce when a player signs a homegrown deal, the club that they originally developed with and like you should do that and, and try to build those relationships. And maybe this is another way to do that. Still yeah. not a fan of it, but maybe that maybe it helps. So that I think that relationship actually has has turned around a lot for most markets already because I think the thought process, and this is like getting into the weeds at the youth level though, is on the money side, it's a numbers thing. So I'll take Inter-Miami as an example. Weston and Kendall are two of the biggest clubs in the Miami area. Weston and Kendall make money because they have 60 players on the boys and girls side at each age group. If you go to them and say, we will only, we're only taking one guy. We are not running a youth team for profit at massive scale. We are trying to compete with the best 21 kids at each age group. It seems like for the most part, Clubs in the U.S. are okay with that because, yeah, they want to win. They want to win championships, but this is the best player, the one best player. They can understand that that player will go, sort of what Paul just talked about. They can celebrate it. They can use it as an example to parents and say, hey, if your kid wants to play at the next level, like we are a pathway to that. But also, they're not really losing that much money because it's just one player. And that's really the process that you have to have. I think... And I think Inter Miami's actually done a good job at that early on. Uh, Red Bulls has a really good program set up with like PDA, one of the big clubs in the area where they have best players on PDA that they are interested in train once a week, I think, with the Red Bulls. The coaches come as well. So then you're doing coaching education across multiple clubs. And then at the end of the year, that player comes and joins. Red Bulls goes to their best players or their players that maybe they don't think fit right now and say, we think you should go play at PDA. And almost swap in the other direction. I think all of that's possible. I think coaching education is a big part of this as well, though, is like you need to go out and be teaching coaches in your area so that you can improve the quality of players that are produced in your area. But now you get back into the conversation of, well, if we're going to do that and then the player goes to a different market, the players start going to different markets, is it worth the investment? So I don't think there's a clean answer to any of this. I do think this is a better structure. I do think not having to constantly be recruiting with the kids who are already there. I would like to see a system in which players can apply to get out. If that becomes an issue of like, oh, you're in our team and you want to go to Nashville, but you're in our team, you would like players to have some level of influence. I don't know who then arbitrates over that and how fair that ends up being. But I do think that this is a step in the right direction. I think this plan reaches that balance of wide open which is what some people want versus completely controlled, which is what other people want. And I think you have to sit somewhere in the middle. I would just throw out there on the USL side too. Yeah. USL teams should have their academies. They should be producing their players that they can sell on as well. And I don't mind that as an option. What we saw with Jonathan Gomez, with Louisville, Brian Ko out in Orange County, Nate Worth now in Tulsa. Like I, I think that's fine for select players but you're never going to build a USL team around kids. It's just too hard to win at that level, at that stage as well. So there's always going to be that balance. But there should be 
you know, 120, 150 pro level academies across the United States. Yeah. I, I just want to really quickly, sorry, Taylor, I know okay. you're going to jump in here, but one other thing that we need to address and, and, and Goss just hit on it a little bit and I want to acknowledge it. It's the other part of this, which is the resources that it's going to take to work this system the way that it needs to be worked, right? To, to make sure that violations are being caught. You know, right now the player department at MLS is, is bare bones. Like they, they don't have enough staff to be policing all of this stuff. Teams don't want to, these most recent ones. They're they're reported. They're reported by teams. They're that's, pretty that's obvious to everyone. <laughs> yeah, like, they're the ones when you bring it up to someone where they're like, "Well, this club did this." Like every club knew about the ones that. Right. That were well, out it's there. like, yeah, like how did this player end up in this academy when he's from this city? Yeah. And it's like, well, and how and, do you think he did? And just to throw it out there, <laughs> there are players who switch academies, and it's and it's considered okay right now. So, right. like, there is movement that is acceptable in players that are on those lists. Yeah, and 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 again, it's just going to come down to how do you staff this? Where do you put your resources and and how do those resources work toward the ultimate goal which is signing and developing good players? Um but I think that is a big part of it at the league level, at the team level is how are you allocating resources to to make this system as efficient as possible? And I think that's one of the the questions right now. It's the same thing with the first team level with budget violations. It's like they don't have a compliance person or a compliance department at MLS to, they don't have the capability of auditing. It was the same. I mean, this is not an MLS issue, right? Like you look at what's happening with the premier league in Manchester city and city football group, like the amount of resources it takes to like properly audit owners who are multi-billionaires who own several companies. And now when we're seeing countries, you know, continents as well, countries and you, you're seeing um, what there was this news that came out that showed Payments being made of with Abramovich, the files that have come out, the oligarch files that show that he was using multiple shell companies to potentially fund Vitesse while always mm-hmm. saying that, oh, we're not really connected. And the only reason it comes out is because now there's like this information dump where you see these multiple shell companies in Caribbean islands that are linked. I mean, you you can't do it. And not, not like this is all happening at the MLS level. But my point is, is like, the question is like, how many resources do we devote to this? How seriously do we take it? And to Goss's point, can we simplify it? Can we say, these are the prices, these are the punishments? And and that's also protecting MLS, right? Because the other thing they're not going to want is some wealthy family who says, okay, I can work remotely. I'm going to move to that market. And for an MLS team to say, well, you can't, you know, well, they're moved to that market really because they got recruited illegally and so we're going to hold on to that kid's rights and that that team needs to pay us 600000 in GAM to, to be able to sign. And the parents are going to say, oh, really? I just moved here. It should be free and I'm going to go to court to fight you. Like MLS is going to want to be able to say like, nope, this trade's happening. It's 300000 Like this is not a conversation, right? Because they don't ever want it to get to that level. So like all of these things serve a purpose and protect and work towards this this goal, I guess, of like not having teams butt heads as often as they they might and I, I like that paul mentioned that structure because to me this is it there's no silver bullet to make major league soccer relevant to the best league in the world or top whatever by whatever year they say and whatever but like this to me has clearly been the most successful part of major league soccer over the last 15 years and so it's wild to me to think that you wouldn't want to be like an Eredivisie 
where it's like you want to produce players, you can produce players, you don't even need a, a proof of concept anymore. It's already happened. Right? You've sold Brendan Aronson for X millions of dollars. You've sold Mark McKenzie. You've sold, I can't even think of players anymore. Gio Reyna. Yeah, yeah. Gio Reyna has come out of your league. Like, it's already there. So it's not even like, oh, in 2007 and eight and nine, where it's like, well, this is what other countries do. So this is how we do it, but there's no proof of concept. There is proof of concept now. And all of the investment in Major League Soccer, I think, as it grows, should be in this side of things to, Make better players so you have better teams to sell players to win World Cups for U.S. and Canada. Like, to me, that should be the goal. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand when anything else is the focus outside of that from a competitive point of view. Well, isn't, to my mind, isn't part of it that, like, you're talking about looking at other countries and their models when it comes to how they operate soccer football clubs it sounds like MLS isn't necessarily looking at those models as much as they are more domestic models like the NFL as their sort of background for how to operate. And and I feel like they're having to try to bridge those two identities of being a closed system, basically a monopoly in this country, but then having lots of other competitors around the world that they also have to compete with. It seems like they're trying to kind of find a way to bridge that gap, so to well, speak. So I just want to say... What you're saying, though, there's two spaces. We're talking professional level. We're talking youth development level. Those are different. Like professional sports in the U.S. are closed monopolies. That's how Major League Soccer is operating. But youth development in the U.S. is miles behind the rest of the world on every sport. Like the fact that there are NBA players who don't have a jump shot is insane because there are you nine players that are playing for Austria VN in front of 6,000 fans with flares who know how to receive the ball across their body. So that is also, I just want to throw out there, one of the other things MLS is trying to figure out, which is how do you operate in North America, but also operate similar to the rest of the world? Paul? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there is a complete kind of reckoning moment that's been happening over the last few years for MLS because, because partly because of the players that they've started to sell. And that has pushed MLS into the global market in a real way. And, you know, Almi Roan also contributes to that. And the, the player sales that we've seen, John Duran. Alfonso like, Davies. And, How could I not think Alfonso of Alfonso Davies, Davies before? The, player, the players that you, that you sign, that MLS has signed from, from markets, they are now a real part of both sides of this global football economy, as, as, you know, as it's known, essentially. And for a long time, MLS was able to create a bubble around its players. And that was done to kind of artificially keep the valuation of those players low, right? To keep costs down. And that bubble has burst now, right? Like it's why Walker Zimmerman is making two and a half million dollars a year. And they're trying to figure out how to deal with that, right? Where can they keep the bubble existing and where is that impossible? And I think that we see some of that here at the youth levels as well. Is like these players, like I said, are all lottery tickets. Like they're all dollar signs potentially. And that changes the way teams look at this, right? This is no longer like a youth operation where you hope to maybe get a first team player, right? Like this is like a, hey, can we turn this player into a $10 million transfer? And and you can. The proof is there across multiple markets in Major League Soccer. And and so that's part of this kind of wrestling that's happening. And I think that's why 
you know, this is another issue that we've written about at The Athletic. That's why there's now a discussion about having an internal transfer market in MLS that's never existed before, of why they want to be able to buy and sell players from from MLS within MLS. Because they're saying, look, we need to really start to set valuations on these players that are real. Like teams don't understand that there's a a, a difference in rate between GAM and cash. So they're like, oh, why should we pay $4 million for this player when he was traded for a million dollars in your league? They are coping with the fact that they are now, the bubble doesn't exist anymore. And so I think all of these changes and adjustments that we're seeing are, are part of that kind of new way of operating of, of saying, okay, yes, like business model wise, we are still like the NFL. We want parity. We want to operate together. We're going to have, um, we're going to have profit sharing and we're going to work to like build the brand. But sporting wise, they have to be able to, to compete with the rest of the world because they, they operate in this global market. And the NFL doesn't have to worry about that. And how do you, how do you bring these two things together? And, and that's kind of pushing all of these rule changes, starting with TAM in 2015, the U22 initiative after that, uh, homegrown sales, teams being able to keep 100% of those sales. Like all of these adjustments are happening because MLS's place in the market has evolved. And so this is one of the conversations I've been having this week is like, so one, the Green Bay Packers don't have an academy. The Green Bay Packers don't develop <laughs> they, their next quarterback. They do. They just can't control it. And they, <laughs> they, have, they have a, a nice amateur system set up for them that they don't have to pay for. Absolutely. But again, this guy plays, plays a run option offense, which no one in the NFL uses. Will he be blah, blah, blah. It's insane to me still that that's the way that they operate because they're producing worse players. Like there's not worse but there's like there are gaps in those systems. It doesn't matter. They have a monopoly. There's not another football league on the world that competes with them. And internally, no one cares about anything but football. So it doesn't matter. Uh, so you have that side of things, which is like now you're trying to build academy setups. I was talking to uh, someone who operates out of Belgium and every kid from the age of, I think, seven through 37 in Belgium pays $50 a year on insurance and that's how they play soccer. And it doesn't matter if they're going to be pro or not. Like that's how much it costs. And if you don't play for Anderlecht, you play for the second division teams Academy. If you don't play for them, it's down and down and down and down and down. That structure doesn't exist here. And it probably can't for a really, really long time. If ever. So I would say if ever. Yeah. So you're in a way you're starting with a blank piece of paper and you have so many ideas from around the world how you put it all together, though, there is no model that you're following. And that's what I think makes it really interesting, but it also makes it really difficult. And you have to sort of operate in these spaces where, you know, talk about a great athlete where their older brother or sister plays basketball. And you say to them, well, no, you can't go play for the Philadelphia Union because you're, you're, a, you know, you're, you're a DC Academy player. But their, their sibling plays AAU basketball wherever they want. How are you going to control that? And so that's sort of the space you have to understand. I just think for context that you're operating in, which is pretty brand new. And so you're trying to find rules and setups and everything. I've heard some people say every MLS team should run a massive 700 kid U12 program for kids 5 to 12 that they never pay for. And so when they turn 13, the parents are going to say, this is the club we operate with. But then do you start charging them at that point? Do you only select 50, you know, 40 kids at that point, 21? Like, there are so many ideas out there. There's not – and I think a lot of the MLS teams have figured out 
how to develop players, mm-hmm. but this is bigger picture stuff that yeah. we're talking about. And it's also then you go back to poisoning the local well that Paul was talking about when like DC comes in. And if you're offering all those kids free soccer, which is a good thing at the same time, all of those clubs that exist yes. to make money yes. uh, because they don't have pro teams attached to them are probably not going to be too thrilled. Let's keep talking about uh, this and many more things. Maybe we'll talk about U.S. stuff. Probably not since uh, we're going plenty along on this one. But I think it's genuinely a fascinating chat. Uh, one more break back soon. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think... 
I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back, Paul. I wanted to come to you for this question, just because I think where my brain goes when you talk about the nine players outside of the academy is the immediate idea of what if those guys have zero connection to the club that is now claiming or the team that is now claiming to have their rights. From what you understand, how often is that the case? Because I keep picturing this player who wants to go sign for the Galaxy or for Chicago, but because they're in Charlotte's catchment area, nope, we've never interacted with you. We have no connection to you, but we know you're really good. We've heard you're really good. So we claim you and you're ours. Yeah, I mean, we don't know. It's still very new. I mean, I'll use an example that's you know, kind of publicly out there right now, David Vasquez, who's a U.S. under-17 national team player who plays for the Philadelphia Union. Well, he moved to the Union from Los Angeles. You know, he wasn't playing for LAFC's academy. He wasn't playing for the Galaxy's academy. Um, but he was in their catchment area. And, you know, these protected lists are being created for players like that, who are top players in your market, even if they're not in your academy that you want to hold the rights to, because you think that player could potentially be a pro in MLS or a player you sell. And Vasquez's family said, Hey, we want to move him to Philadelphia where they do have a school. They do have a place for him to stay. And we think that there's a path. We see the pathway that they've created. So we think this is better. And, you know, essentially that's what leads to these kind of forced trades or these, these, exchange of exchange of gam yeah. for for Can you rights. explain that a little bit more that's the third time you've said forced trades you said it in your article and it sounded yeah, very counterintuitive to me yeah it's basically what like it's what the cso's were calling these fines right like it's not a fine that they're paying to the league it's a fine that they're paying to the teams of the homegrown area where the kid was recruited from so it's like a trade of gam but like it's, it's you the, take away the, the negotiation part it, of right it, the yeah. negotiation's not there it's the league decrees this is what you're paying this team so that's those issues are going to exist. We we know that because this that's what this CSO call was basically built around. Like there are these are these instances of these kids being recruited out of these areas that are not supposed to be. And I think it's going to continue to happen, right? Because I'm getting I'm getting DMs now off of this article from parents and people in market saying, "How do I find out if my kid is on these lists?" Cuz they're not public. Right? I don't I don't know the answer to that yet. I don't know our MLS teams calling those clubs to say, "Hey, just want to give you a heads up, like we're putting you on a protected list. Are they having academy coaches call those families to say, listen, we're really interested in having you in our academy. We put you on our protected list. We see a pathway for you to professional minutes. We just want you to know that. Like, I don't know if these kids are being informed or not that they're even on these lists. Uh, it's something I am now going to be going out and reporting because I'm getting all these DMs from parents being like, how do we know if our kid's on this list? And I, I sympathize with that. I mean, my kids are so little but like, Are you tempted to write back like, trust me, they're not. Don't worry about it. Yeah, like, just just, just no. shut that down right there. You know, because, you know, I've made the mistake before being like, yeah, like, I'm sure your kid's like a professional. And then like they actually are like a year <laughs> later. And I was like being super sarcastic with these parents. That I thought sure we're not serious. Christian and their Bullis kid is like, gonna go, you know, bro, whatever. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But like, yeah, but I, I do sympathize with these parents of saying like, like I can I can close my eyes and envision when my kids are older 
wanting to choose who they play for uh-huh. based on what I think is best for them. And it's not necessarily about like the best soccer for them. It might be like, hey, I really don't like this coach and I don't feel like my kid should 100%. play for you. Yeah. And like that. So like those types of things get I understand that these families are not going to love the idea that like their kids rights, quote unquote, are controlled. We also have to keep in mind the thing we were just joking about, which is like the number of kids who sign professionally, you know, it's it's increasing, but it's still a very small percentage. And so some of these kids are going to have their rights protected for, you know, six months of the year. And on the third version of the list this year, they're going to be off of that nine and a new kid's going to be on that nine. And and so that's going to be a part of this process as well, because like I think I've reported it. I can't think of it off the top of my head. I think it's every three or every six months. You have to like refile this list, so it's not like a a year long thing. And you better but, believe there's going to be parents coming to clubs saying, "Oh, we're not on your nine, but FC Dallas wants it." Right? Trust us, they're talking right. to us. You know what I mean? Right, like you better right. believe in the youth ranks, it's all going on. Right. So yeah, I mean it's 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 going to be an issue, and I, I I do think it's interesting how you manage this idea of are these... I mean, the number one question I'm getting on DM after the story ran is like, why are these lists not public? Where can I find out who's on these lists? And I'm sure that was a very interesting discussion behind the scenes in MLS of deciding like, what do we do with these lists? Um, Because for the reasons God said, you don't necessarily want those names out there um, publicly of of the players that you're you're putting on your list. So it's... Because if you put that list out there... That's where Schalke and Villarreal and yes. Inter, Mil- yeah. Inter Milan are going to start their recruiting or start their right. scouting. Right, exactly. So there's just so many layers to this. But yes, I imagine after a few months of already seeing these incidents pop up that there will be many, many, many debates over those nine players. And I think also the big gray area that teams are talking about is under that U15 level. Is the 13-year-old who's going to be a U15 next year is saying, hey, don't go join that academy. Like, move now to Philly. But we never had this conversation, right? Or like, move now to... I don't want to just keep using Philly. Like, move now to Austin. But we never had this conversation. They were the only one I think you you, you named in like the opening of your article. So Yeah, well, I, think it's I know. And I, and I put out a video yesterday where I, nine teams in total were hit with sanctions. The two teams that were hit the hardest were Philly and Austin. Those were the two biggest defenders. But like, that's the area. It's like, you're getting into these gray areas where what do you do? If you're Philly or Austin, let's say you're Philly, and a kid from Maryland's parents call you. And they say, hey, we're interested in moving to Philadelphia area. Uh, We have a 13-year-old kid who plays for Bethesda. And can we get a trial with you before we move up? Well, technically, you're not supposed to have any contact with these kids that are from another MLS team's territory. Where do you judge? Like, we didn't initiate the contact. They came to us. Like, do we have to go to the league and say, like, Hey, they're thinking about moving and we can't offer you a trial until you do move. Like these are the gray areas that I don't know. I don't know that MLS knows the answer to it, right? Like if a youth coach calls you and says, Hey, I have a really good U13 player. And like, I think that, you know, I have a relationship with you. We went to college together. I'm the DOC. I trust what you guys are doing here. I'm going to send this kid to you. And again, you didn't initiate the contact and these, these parents are willing to move. Like that is going to happen. It is happening. And I don't know what the right answer is for this. And I don't know that MLS knows either, but technically 
that breaks the rules, it's a violation, and it's going to be some sort of punishment deemed by the league. And I think that's probably where you face an overcorrection, where it used to be nothing was regulated, and now you overregulate it, and then you end up, for every player you give 150000 in allocation to another club for that you probably shouldn't, you're probably going to get it back. Or, right. well, but, but, or they'll the lose out is- on a player who was worth more than 150000 but then you gave 150000 for players who weren't, and it probably the hope is you find a number where it all evens out. Or who is keeping track of that, right? Yeah. Like, does the DC United Academy recognize the 13-year-old who left Bethesda and signed in Philadelphia and his parents move and flag that to the league? Is the MLS player department saying, oh, look at this 14-year-old a year later who comes up from the Philadelphia Academy, but hey, when they were 13... They played in Bethesda. How did they move? Let me call that. Like, is there somebody whose job is that? Like, probably not. So there's going to be the, that's like, and that again is this gray area. And, and, and so, yeah, this is going to, this is going to happen. This is just the world in which this is you soccer, man. I mean, it's, it's, it's just what, when they created the homegrown rule, Sporting KC signed a Hungarian homegrown in Kansas City. Like, well, we all, we all, we all, we all have the greatest homegrown signing of exactly. all time. Exactly. We all have ways to get around <laughs> stuff, and everyone's going to try and push stuff. Your hope is that it's there, there has to be some adults in the room at some point. And that's, I think, the part with youth soccer that gets a little tough. Even here, where you're talking to European clubs and scouts and agents about, and it's like, it's a 14 year old, right? Like, there has to be that level of balance. And I think that's the hope is that someone can be a mediator in the room. And I would say on, on the side with the with the nine players, it's like, the clubs that are run well, they have local connections. You're bringing in some level of academy coaches, directors, scouts who are connected locally because that's what they should be. There should be enough contact there that the local big clubs and the players know who's involved and who isn't. Because like the most of the people we're talking about come out of the youth ranks in these regions. Gus, do you get the sense that players like that you're seeing at, at GA Cup? Uh, this is kind of a tough question, I think, to answer. But some of those players obviously playing for MLS teams already or in MLS academies already. Do you get the sense that players want to play for MLS teams? Or if there's a Schalke scout there, are they more stoked about Schalke? Because I think, Paul, what I can't shake is your sort of Brighton, uh, the, the kid go, running through the tunnel because he's signing for Brighton uh, like story. And the idea that I, I don't know if a kid in Annandale is having running through the tunnel because he's signing for DC United or is he excited because he's going to Benfica's academy. Like, I think that's where I still don't know how big of a draw Major League Soccer is. My assumption is it's becoming a bigger draw, but I still wonder about that level of competition. I'm going to steal this from Goss because it, it, it kind of hit me in the feels a little bit, to be honest, being a DC area guy. I was really struck by the speech that Kevin Paredes gave when he was leaving DC United where he stood up and talked about exactly that, about feeling so excited when he first signed a homegrown deal with DC United, that it was the team that he grew up watching in his area, that he had been growing up wanting to be there and to have had the opportunity to play for DC United as a homegrown was huge for him. He wasn't crying tears of joy for leaving to a Bundesliga club and and the opportunity that that was. He was was crying because he was leaving his boyhood club. So I I think that that exists. I think – Every player is going to be different, though. There are going to be players who dream of going to Europe, and that is their full, their their sole focus. That is where they want to be, and they could not, they could, they do not care about MLS at all. They wouldn't want to sign with that team no matter what. But there are players in certain markets who, yeah, are growing up with Major League Soccer in a way that our generation didn't. Like MLS started 
for me, I was 11 years old and I watched the first game. Like I watched every game that season. I just was home the other day and I was pulling out these like signed DC United player card things from the very first autograph session for DC United. But like I didn't grow up, grow up with it. Like I didn't have like my parents taking me to every game. I didn't have a DC United Academy when I was young that I could try to play for. And and so that that does exist now and it's going to keep growing and growing and growing. But it's a global market and every kid can wake up on Saturday morning and turn on the Premier League and turn on Champions League and Bundesliga and play FIFA and fall in love with those teams too. And that's that's a good thing, you know? That's a good thing. So I, I think I think MLS has definitely made progress in that way for sure. I, I think that's a certainty. Um, but yeah, there are definitely going to be kids who are playing a GA Cup who are going to look over and see a jacket that's got a Gladbach sign on it and think, I'm going to go to Germany, man. This is going to be awesome. Like, I want to score in front of these guys. Yeah, And, part, and that's natural. Part of it is the structure of the world, right? Even at the pro level, players that... A player goes from Richmond Kickers to DC United. They feel like they took a step up. If they go from DC to Portugal, they feel like yeah, they maybe, took a step maybe up. Maybe they do. That might be a bad <laughs> example. Who knows? Uh, that that <laughs> will always exist. That will always happen. And and I think for the most part, a lot of these players are committed to it. Now, I will say it's really fun. One of the fun parts of this tournament is your multiple age groups. So the U15s come and watch the U17s. They're doing the chants that yeah. supporters groups do. And like they are as MLS grows, because the other part of what Paul grew up in and I grew up in and you grew up in was like, I went to an empty giant stadium. It wasn't that cool. And it wasn't that fun. And so if you are a kid and yeah. a lot of teams, you know, if you're the ball boy at Nashville at Geodis Park in front of 30,000 people and Honey Mukhtar scores a goal and the lights are going on, like it is something you want to be a part of. And that's that should be the club's responsibility to sell that over the course of time. They yeah. should create a connection. That the kids feel a part of this, feel committed. They feel like it's a big deal. And and the dream, unfortunately, or whatever you want to call it, is to have that Kevin Paredes moment. To say, it was my dream to represent this club. And I am representing them in what I do going forward. Alfonso Davies is representing the Vancouver Whitecaps by winning a Champions League as a Whitecaps alumni. Or whatever term you want to use to describe that. So I do think that should all be part of it. Now you're in a space with agents where... Agents need to help players and families understand their pathway of is being in the Schalke Academy better for you or is playing first team Major League Soccer at that age roughly better for you and then moving to Beverin or I don't know what uh, Venezia. Right. And so I, that none of that is an answer. Beverin? Isn't yeah, that I love the- that. That's a poll. That's just being like, <laughs> I know more about soccer than you guys. Wasn't that the one Moses Nineman just came from? <laughs> yeah, but it's just a good, it's just a good <laughs> poll. Uh, but but and that and that part of things, I think, has tipped a little bit. Where it used to be, there's no question. Anything related to Europe, you're gone. You have to go, no matter what. You have a passport. You're dual national. Your parents are from here. Your grandparents live here. You're gone. I think that has tipped a bit. Where there is space and a conversation now of the better pathway for me is to come up through Timbers to play as a homegrown for the Portland Timbers and then make a move. Well, that this is another episode for sure. But like, Let's do I, am, it. I, I am a person <laughs> who thinks that there is a real conversation that that is going to be happening now in MLS that is linked directly to how quickly MLS Next Pro develops. Because right now, right now, as it stands today, playing an MLS Next Pro like there is a conversation that agents and parents are going to be having of, 
is it better to sign with MLS and play in MLS Next Pro for two years for my development than it is to sign in USL and play in the USL Championship in front of crowds of ten or 15,000 and against grown men to develop and then go to Europe, right? If you're looking, if you are somebody who says Europe is the goal and what is my pathway, there, you know, I think no one is debating. I don't want to say no one is debating. MLS's whole point is like MLS Next Pro is new. It's going to develop into something bigger and better, but right now its level is below the USL. It's more of a U19 league. You're not playing in front of crowds. You're missing that pressure to win. You're missing that opportunity to play against grown men. And that to me is, I think, a really interesting dynamic. It's why I said I think USL now has like a window to really push and say we are the best place for young players to develop. I, I thought we had a great quote from a CSO in our anonymous survey with Sam Stasekul who we all miss very R. much R. from this space. Um, Can we just do that for the rest of the time, RIP? <laughs> yeah, I did it yesterday. I felt like so weird. I was like, somebody saw that I was arguing about New Who, and they were like, yep. this is weird without Sam. And I was Wait, like, gone you, but never forgotten. Where did you see that, Paul? Where did you see that? Because I know was the that answer. you? No, but it was, was it in Twitter. the comments section where wow. you also were having thrown no, Felipe it was in, not. The it was in the Twitter. comments? It was on Twitter. Uh-huh. It was on Twitter. Um, convenient. Convenient. Yeah. Uh, but... I, I think that there is like this now this new debate that exists at the, that that highest level of youth development, that second team level of where is the right place to put your player. And for some kids, it is better to be an MLS Next Pro playing against 19 year olds. That is the place to play, get consistent minutes and get better. And then you'll be ready to go maybe on loan to a USL team or maybe then you go into the first team. And I thought the CSO in that anonymous survey nailed it. It was like all of these things are tools. Like MLS Next Pro is a tool. USL loans are a tool. First team minutes are a tool. There isn't one answer. So when you're presenting it to these kids, you have to be able to say to them, yeah, like we're going to start you an MLS Next Pro. But if you develop rapidly and you hit your ceiling at this level, well, then we might send you on loan to a USL team. Or maybe we'll pull you up to the first team faster than we think. Like it doesn't have to be one consistent pathway. To, to Goss's point, though, you need to understand what is the right pathway for you. And I think that that idea is a, is a little bit different now for MLS teams with the positives and negatives of MLS Next Pro, which is like you're training next to the first team, but it's not as high of a level as USL, but you're controlling their minutes. But do you need to get them playing against like it's it's a it's a totally different conversation now. And I, I find it fascinating because I'm a huge nerd. But, you know, it's it's like there's so many different like avenues to to discuss, like what the best thing is for these kids or whether MLS Next Pro is like what it needs to be right now. And just for fans out there, if you're thinking about what Paul's talking about, which is a massive conversation going on, think about the manager of your first team. This is where they become crucial. Does the manager at the club where I'm an academy kid play academy players? Does he come around? Does he know my name? Am I training consistently? And that's where the managers, maybe it's not their job to develop players, but they are the figurehead of the club in a way. And this is on GMs and, and sporting directors as well to be involved in this stuff. And I just want to say this is because I, I didn't end up writing this part of my reporting from Orlando yet. I'm waiting for Duncan McGuire, my guy, big dunks to score goals so I can use my interview with him when I was in Orlando, but everyone was gone on international break and MLS was playing through it. And I was standing out on the practice field. I had just talked to Duncan McGuire and Oscar Preja was walking towards me to say hello and talk a little bit. And he passed these two academy kids who were going to be training with the first team. 
And they had, I got there early for the interviews and these two kids came out fully kitted up, ready to practice. And no one was on the field. Right. And they were like, and they came up to me and the comms guy and they were like, um, when is, when does training start? They just didn't want to be late. Right. So they were like 40 minutes early. And so it was cool, chilly out for Orlando. So we were like, you guys can probably go so inside like and wait for like degrees, 20 minutes. It. No, it was, like, it was like 63. I was the only one in short sleeves. Let's put it that way. All the Floridians had like full <laughs> coats on. Of course. And including Oscar. So Oscar like comes walking with his coffee. And these two kids are now like have been waiting for like 25 minutes to not be like the first kids out on the field, but also not be late. And Oscar stopped and was like, hey, and called them both by name. He's like, you're with us today, right? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, you can go over there and start kicking the ball. <laughs> like they didn't know what to do. Yeah. But like Oscar knew who they were. He had called for them to come up to training. He knew them by name. When I asked him about how close he or how much progress he feels like he's made at the academy level, he rattled through the academy kids who were, were starting to play now for Orlando City, but also some of the kids he was keeping an eye on at the next level down. Like that's what Goss is talking about. Right? Like Pereja is known for building that at FC Dallas. This is a part of who he is as a coach, right? understanding the value of these young players and the, the fact that sometimes you're going to play them before they're ready. They're not as good as that professional player. Jim Curtin talked about this with Brendan Aronson. Like, were there better players on the bench, professionals who were sharper than Brendan Aronson was when he was first getting those minutes? Yes. But you play him because you think that ceiling is going to be there. And it, it, it got that ceiling happened fast. Like that ceiling jumped significantly higher than they all thought, faster than they all thought. But that's partly because they stuck him out there and they kept sticking him out there. Um, so, yeah, like figure out what you're, you know, whether you have a manager willing to do that and understanding that that is a part of who we are as a club. I love that you brought up Oscar Pereja because what he did in Dallas is obviously huge. I, I would argue Dallas was the first, even before Philly, to figure this out. You own Oscar Pereja's office. He's got a depth chart on the wall for every one of the academy teams all the way down to 15s, and then under that, it's just a list of names and sort of how they view them. And Luis Muse is the same, and he was in Dallas. And what they've built in Orlando, like I do the GA Cup pretty much every year. Um, say Orlando and Columbus are the two that we had never broadcast before because they'd never really been in a competitive game. And they're two of the favorites in the U17s and U15 level this year. They've both produced homegrowns that matter in Major League Soccer. Columbus a bit quicker then maybe Orlando in less time, which is actually really impressive. But Orlando, again, being an area where there are soccer players. There are great athletes. And it yeah. should have always been this way. And it was like pay to play. And then they farmed it out to Montvert Academy. And there was a whole mess. And now it's one of the more professional and well-run organizations. They're continuing to push it and change things and add things. Um, and maybe I think someone messaged us about doing a, a youth development pod, which this ended up being a, a large part of. Yep. But we can talk about sort of some of the signs that you can get from the outside of how much a team cares. And there are like sort of buckets where you can spend money and put resources for a club. And that shows me from the outside how much an academy is committed. And Orlando is starting to be one of those. And so that's really exciting. San Jose is another one that sort of turned things around. Um, Columbus being a big one as well. RSL's done a good job. They had historically. They've shifted how they do it. But they've all been pretty impressive over the course of this weekend, the last few years. I think what Goss is saying is that all the people who have been in my DMs asking questions should now be in his DMs because he yep. can give a full scouting report on every MLS team's academy structure and where I these kids should sign. Not respond. <laughs> there are many things I'm willing to do. The uh, messaging with the Reinas about their the minutes of their youth players not yeah. one I'm getting involved in. 
Yeah. They, they have come, <laughs> in, come up in my head multiple times in this conversation talking about parents being involved and perhaps overly involved. Uh, final question that in and of itself could be another episode. I think we've come up with like six more episodes on this. I think heading into this conversation, I was feeling sort of like the conflict over should there be catchment areas or no catchment areas, should it be open or closed, that that felt very – I felt very strongly one way about that one. And I, I, it sounds like you two are more on board the sort of like hybrid approach, figuring it out as we go, fine-tuning it uh, to make it work best for everybody. So I guess first of all, is that a fair thing to say? And second of all, if so – does that mean that do you all feel like youth development in this country is improving? That's the question that could be a, I don't know, a mini series unto itself. But overall, do you feel like these are positive steps, positive signs that we're even having these conversations versus uh, should we have a development academy? Our academy is good. Uh, Gus, we can go to you first since you're trying to figure out who should answer first. <laughs> I think zero question that it has improved. And people who tell you that it hasn't probably were really good youth soccer players between 1995 and 2003, or maybe 1990 and 2003. It, it is hands down higher. There are still holes. There are still holes in the players we're developing. There are still holes in the system. There are still holes in the funding. There are still holes in the ethics of the whole thing. I think that's sort of what we've come across over the last, I don't know, Joe Larry level hour podcast or whatever it's been on this one. But like, so I'll, I'll give you this, this just super baseline. This isn't probably the way you should do this. But at the Generation Adidas Cup, the first two, three years I did it, it was maybe Red Bulls, maybe FC Dallas would sneak a team into a semifinal and then three international teams. Now, pretty consistently, it's two to three MLS teams. An MLS team will win it. But when you watch the soccer, the MLS team goes out and plays the way they want to play against international competition. They don't hang on. They don't defend in a deep block and hope for set pieces. They don't wait for the wind to shift and then th float a ball in the air. They play the game they want to play. Now, there are a lot of gaps still. I think the big ones is understanding competitive moments and match identification. Like a center back on Flamengo knows when the game's against them and when to take out a player's leg and slow the whole game down and start yelling at the referee so that everyone gets chaotic and it shifts the momentum and changes the game. And a lot of the foreign clubs here at GA Cup will win in stoppage time because they have that extra 0.1% to know they can't lose that 50-50 in that moment. It's a foul or the ball's going on their foot. And those are the things I think maybe in the U.S. and we haven't talked about Canada as much because it's a whole nother monster. We overcorrected into the technical side. We went from, uh, you know, the Jay Demerits of the world to now we have to produce the Jack McGlynn's of the world. And you have to find the balance in between of technical quality, soccer, understanding, game ID, as well as competitive nature. And I think that's what that last step really piece is. But there is zero question that it has gotten better. And I think that's evident from the World Cup. That was a team that was young, that was talented. It, there are more pieces coming through that can make a difference at that level. So that's my quick answer. Yeah, I mean, Gaz nailed it in, in terms of the profile of person that's going to push back because it's me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Unreal. <laughs> um, look, I, I think that... Um, I think the thing that's improved the most, that's changed drastically what youth development looks like in this country, 
is Major League Soccer existing and academies existing that give players a path to play first team soccer as teenagers and structure in place that show them a finish line that they're working towards and that then creates a pipeline to Europe and that that's opened up a pipeline directly to Europe even that, you know, it existed before there were players who made those jumps, but it wasn't like it is now. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has more of an impact on what that World Cup team looked like than the actual development of players. When I. So there's two there's two notes on that development side that I'll that I'll go with. The first is that like I played for a very good youth coach who is still one of the best youth coaches in the country. He works now mostly on the, the girl side of things. Um, his name is Clyde Watson. And like we played tiki taka soccer. Like he's Dutch influence style, Cruyff, whatever. We went to Holland and we played teams, Dutch teams, and we beat them. I and mean, we also got we also lost some of the games, but like I remember playing Rhoda and beating them four one and walking off the first the field and the first team waiting for us to like say we didn't know American we knew Americans were playing soccer, we didn't know they could play football. So like I don't think it's a new thing that like American youth teams can compete against European teams. You just said Rhoda? Yeah. I mean, okay. Rhoda is the example of like that team. We also played Eredivisie teams. I mean, Rhoda was in the Eredivisie at the time we played them. But like, I'm just making sure teams. we're talking about Flamengo, Palmeiras. We're talking about Man U, Chelsea. So we played just... We played PSV. We played Vitessa. Like okay. we played teams. We, but like my point being that like I think that American players have always been not always been, but over the last two decades been technical enough and good enough to compete in games. I think what's changing is the number of players and teams that are able to do it the pipeline of those players to go to that next level that didn't exist before. Like if you like there were players on my team that got recruited out of that trip to go and sign and play in Holland, but no one did. And like their pathway was college and they went and played at high level colleges. And, you know, some of them turned pro and some of them didn't. And, and now they're all like DOCs at different academies and stuff like that. Like that was kind of the way things existed before. And that that's not the way it exists now. And, I think that's the biggest change is like good young players now have a place to grow further. And when I first wrote about the development academy, the second time I'm bringing it up back in 2007 at the Washington Post, when it was first created, I remember like a year or so into it. One of my first big soccer stories at the Washington Post was about what Bruce Arena called the black hole of American soccer development, which was the ages of like, in his mind, like 16 to 20. It's like we are fine at developing players at the youth levels but then we don't know how to get them to the next stage. And that is what MLS is, has been helping to solve. When I went to Germany and went to Bayern Munich to sit down with Chris Richards and Taylor Booth at the time, I also sat down with Jochen Sauer, who's the head of the academy there. And what he said was like, American players technically are very good. Like if you go and watch them play, technically they are good players. Athletically, superb, right? The biggest difference is speed of play. Like we bring them here to Bayern, it takes time for them to adapt to the speed of play here. But he was like, the amount of time of adaptation has been dropping, dropping, dropping. Now that was a few years ago that I was there. I'm sure that time has dropped even further. So is it getting better? Yes. Is it like drastically different on the technical sides? I don't think so. But I think that that black hole area is getting smaller. The pathway to develop players at those older ages is getting better and the options for those players to grow is is far more vast. And we're seeing 
that's where we're seeing the differences of we've seen we have the players like Geo and Weston who leap straight from MLS academies to Europe. We have players like Tyler Adams who goes from academy to the second team to the first team in MLS and then goes to Europe. We have all, we have player like Walker Zimmerman who goes youth to college to MLS to the World Cup. These all these pathways exist and there are now real places to develop that that have done a better job of producing good professional players. And that is not insignificant. That is game changing for youth soccer. It is all that matters, right? Like you can have all the technical play. I mean, by the way, like my team, like you talk about like the teams that were coming out of St. Louis at that time, Chicago. Like I remember playing the soccer's team when I first got to Northwestern, the U19 team, like they were good. No one had anywhere to go. Like that we have many places to go now is like, mind-blowing that it's that it exists to the extent it does this quickly and like that to me is like the biggest accomplishment accomplishment of mls is like you have very rapidly created a real place for american soccer players to play at young ages and play well and then be sold and in the grand scheme of things 25 years 20 or so where are we at now 27 20 years of the academy, no, no, 16 years of the academy existing, 16 years of academies existing to be where we are now is, is a pretty darn good accomplishment in 16 years. And the other thing that would, which is amazing, which I don't know that you two would be surprised, but other people might be, is like, there are people who come to major league soccer now from Denmark and, you know, Norway and Spain, some of the best youth setups in the world to you know, run academies here, coach here, the facilities here, the uh, options for these players is so far past what they have there. And so the, the stuff, the tools you're giving these players. And one of the things I say is like, uh, I don't know about you guys. I didn't watch tape as an academy, as a youth soccer player. Nope. And I didn't have someone tracking my, my movements and explaining to me what I could and couldn't do worse, whatever. All these players have to do that at the pro level. They do that at the academy level. So when you do send a Taylor Booth to Bayern Munich's academy, when they step in, it's not foreign to them. Like a lot of the things that the top clubs do and the, a lot of the things that are required of a professional are not weird or, or are not outside the norm to these young players. So that, I think, is part of why they're more prepared for these moments and to take them on. You have the other side, That's which I think yeah. is social conditioning, which is, I think, part of what we saw with the Reina situation of like... If you don't grind yourself and have to find your own pathway, sort of how do you value your career? That's a whole nother conversation. But like, I will go to the U15 game tomorrow for whatever team playing an opponent they didn't know about until 24 hours ago. They will have broken down tape. They will have talked about the way they build out on goal kicks. They will talk about the way they press, how they want to affect that, what they can do to problem solve on the field. They will know their tracking data from the first three days of the games. They will have looked at tape of what is required positionally from them in their system. Let's take Orlando City again, for example. Their right back will be watching tape of Michael Halliday in MLS and saying, this is how our system, this is what a right back's required of them. Like That's tools that we never would have had. That's tools that a lot of youth players around the world do not have. And that's part of what Paul talks about in terms of options, if that's part of the resources and opportunity. I just want to say that I, I also feel glad that I made the argument I did because it's a shout out to Sam Stay School and the arguments that we've had about 
are American players that much better than they were back in the day? And like, is the 2022 World Cup team that much better than the 2002 World Cup team? And uh, we used to scream at each other about it and like uh, never, ever come to an actual conclusion one way or the other. Just just a place to spell, to, to yell. <laughs> the debate so makes just, no sense. The debate yeah, is useless. Makes, <laughs> exactly. But the, I just want to say. Yeah, but after I, like four drinks, it's very important that we do, settle this debate. <laughs> do I think Americans are getting better? Yes. But am I going to push back on David Goss about how much better they've gotten? Yes. I, I am going to do it right here, right now. You better well, believe it was the Sam Stasekel <laughs> argument to a T. <laughs> uh, well, you all have made me feel more optimistic, to be honest. So my final, final question is uh, just very simply, when is the United States men's team going to win the World Cup? Is it 2026? Will we have to wait till like 2034? Uh, I- I'm assuming it's one of those two options. I'll, pu- I'll say 2024. <laughs> We're gonna the win U.S. will right. fund an additional World <laughs> Cup. <we> U.S. <laughs> soccer will host it. We will invite only teams from Oceania and we will win it. <laughs> I thought you were going to say 2023, which is the right, you yeah. know, well, they, they have an uphill but battle. But they've already won the a World Cup, so yeah. I don't think that counts as the no, first. No, I, I, uh, I think Project 2034 sounds great. Project 2034. <laughs> was it 20... Project 2010 killed it, yeah. Project 2010. Pro- Project great. 2010 was... was- <laughs> The, the OG, but Project 2034, it's got, there, no one wants, 2034 just sounds wrong. You need a, you need a round number, but that's why it works, you know? Project 2034. Yeah, see, there we go. The innovator, Paul Tenorio. I, I like it. Gentlemen, thank you very much for taking all the time to talk about this. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed that we came up with like six to seven other topics for future episodes. Yeah. Uh, for now, David Goss, thank you for taking time away from the alligators and the Florida sun and the lovely parking lot to talk about these things. Yeah, you everyone also if you have MLS season pass tune in. I will be on four more broadcasts tomorrow and the next day and the day after that and the day after that. You seem thrilled about I it. I am stoked. And for everyone listening, I can confirm that Paul went to Northwestern. It's very important that we establish that near the end of the episode. Did you he know after that, though, on. that he worked at a newspaper called the Washington Post? Did I he? think is how you say it. No. Yeah. I, I think around the year 2007, 2008. <laughs> the, the worst part is that I wasn't intending to have this T-shirt show, but it's sure, not sure, any sure. better because the hoodie I had on top of it is an athletic hoodie. So I was branded up <laughs> for, for things I'm supposed to represent no matter what. I was, I'm a company guy in a way that I just don't even want to there's a decent northwestern presence here by the way recruiting the top players in the country i i like it that's that's what we the 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 cats should be doing you know maybe that'll get me up to the lakeshore to watch them play on that awful turf field paul at least you didn't go full matt doyle who i feel like like really embracing his troll wears a staff shirt when he's recording mls podcasts that feels a little on the nose i thought we were gonna shout out to doyle he had a good night last night uconn Oh, yes. Eh, does he need more credit? I don't know. If I thought we were going to have an Angel Reese Caitlin Clark debate at some point. I Oh, God. I have so little interest in that conversation that, gentlemen, I will say one more time, thank you both for being here. Uh, listeners, thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you all again very soon. 